right, thank you, Jack, for that prayer, and thank you guys for leading us in worship. We appreciate it. Every week I hear something like this from Jack and these guys. He said to me this morning, Pastor, just remember if it if it don't sound that good, we're doing the best we can. <laughs> to which I replied, Jack, just remember, if my message is not that good today, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we're all doing the best we can, right? All right, here we go. First Corinthians chapter number one is where we are. Uh, you know, we broke off or bit off maybe more than we can stand a couple weeks ago when we started preaching in 1 Corinthians and I decided, well, why not just stay the course and let's be big boys and work on through here. So that's what we're going to do. You'll know that we started this last week and we just had so much going on in our worship service last week till I had to treat last week's message like a salami and cut it off in the middle. And normally when that happens to me, I just go ahead and put that one in the file and figure it's in the past, and we'll just leave it lie. But I couldn't get this one off my heart this week. I even tweaked it a little bit and thought, you know, if, uh, I think I could say it a little better this week than I did last, so we're going to pick up where we left off last week because we, we just scratched the surface of this thing last week, and I think what Paul has to say here is right in the wheelhouse of where grace is and who grace is is and where we're going and all of those types of things. So I think it's going to profit us to finish this thing up today. So let's do that. Follow with me as I begin reading in verse number 1 of chapter number 2 of the book of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 2, verse number 1, God's Word says this. Paul speaking to this struggling, troubled, immature church says, And when I came to you, brethren... I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. We're looking at this passage under the subject or under the theme of attracting a crowd or growing a church because you know there is a difference. Now don't get me wrong, we do want to attract a crowd. Uh, we want to attract a crowd for a different reason than most people want to attract a crowd. You heard Dr. John say, for us it's not about how many we can seat, but it's about how many we can send. So Paul gives some good principles about growing a church in this passage. But he also gives some how-tos, and that's the reason for the subtitle of a model for meaningful ministry. Now let me just mention this for coherency, and then we got to run. All we talked about last Sunday was point number one, which is this. If we're going to get to where we're going as a church, then we must have a specific destination. Got to know where you're going. And where you're going can't just be something that you've made up out of the blue. 
It can't just be what we want ourselves. It's got to be the direction and the destination that God sets for His Word, uh, sets for His church in His Word. What is it that the church ought to be? Who is it that the church ought to be? And what is it that the church should be involved in? You know, uh, what should be consuming most of our time and energy? On what should we be investing most of our resources, both financial and our human resources? Those are good questions. And men, when you look around today, you find that there's a lot of deviation from what the Bible really has to say that a church should be and what a church should be doing. You know that our destination, as Dr. John says, is to be a sending church composed of missional believers. We want to teach the Word, invest in others, and we want to mobilize folk to get out there and do something with your life that counts in eternity. I mean, isn't it going to be a sad day when some believers stand before the Lord, as Paul's going to talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and they watch everything they've done with their life burn up because it related or amounted to nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble rather than gold, silver, and precious stone. Now what a shame that's going to be for you to be standing before the Lord and watch 70 years of life on this earth account for nothing in eternity. And we're determined to put you on a path where that does not happen to you. Lord forbid that should happen to us. That's why we want to grow disciples. That's why we want to make missional believers. We want to make an investment in your life so that when you stand before Him, you have something to show because ultimately we're going to offer whatever we have left right back to Him because He's worthy. Now here we go. Notice our destination and we... We, we started at the very bottom of this passage in verse number 5 because there's a very important clause right there, that so that phrase. What is it, church? Clause. It's a purpose clause. So purpose clause identifies for us the reason, the purpose, the destination. So what was Paul's goal for that church that he planted in Corinth? Here's what he says. He says, I've done everything that I have done in verses 1 through 4 in order that your faith wouldn't rest on the wisdom of men, and I ask you to underline that, but on the power of God. So there are two starting points. And if you want to get to the destination that God has for you, you can't get there from the first starting point. You literally can't get there from here. If your faith is resting on the wisdom of men, then I hate to say it, but if your faith is faith at all, genuine saving faith, you're going to end up standing before God with everything in life burning up that you, have, that you have spent your life on. You can't get to a place of significance if your faith is grounded on the wisdom of men because that's a, that's a starting point of vulnerability. Of vulnerability. Now, I don't think we have anything behind us this morning because uh, uh, this program called Pro Presenter I told Dr. John, I don't call it pro presenter. I call it amateur presenter. <laughs> I'm just an old-fashioned dude, you know. I like PowerPoint. Or really, if it was up to me, I'd have my whiteboard with magic markers up here writing on it for y'all, huh? But anyway, it, it decided to eat it this morning for some reason. I promise you we're on that. But you're going to have to listen to me in order to fill in the blanks this morning because they're not going to come up. thought I'd just give you a heads up on that one. So you're either going to start from a place of vulnerability or from a place of victory. If you start 
from a place of vulnerability which your faith is grounded on the wisdom of men, you're going to wash out. You're going to wash out. That's all there is to it. Because I promise you, if a man can talk you into it, another man can talk you out. If somebody can make you feel good enough to join the church, somebody can hurt you enough to make you leave the church. Are you with me? And that happens a lot today. It's very, very common. Now, here we go. The other place is a place of victory. If your faith is grounded and founded upon the power of God, it's bad grammar, but it's good theology. Ain't nothing nobody can do to run you off. Huh? You're there. You're secure. Because your faith is rooted on something that's stronger than what any man can ever do to you. A man can take you and put you in a food processor and turn it on high speed and puree you, and that doesn't affect you. You understand? It just doesn't. Because your faith is resting upon the power of God. Every time I hear somebody give me some phony excuse as to why they're not involved in a community of faith, investing their life in things that have eternal value and eternal significance, I think, yep, you started from the wrong point. You started out in the wrong place. Therefore, you're in shipwreck because that's a place of vulnerability. That was last week in a nutshell. Here we go. This week, check out what Paul tells us next. He tells us if we're going to get to where we're going, we must have a specific destination. But next, he tells us to get to where we're going, we must have strong determination. Look what he says in uh, verse number Two, you may want to underline this word. For I was determined. I was determined. Hey man, how strong is your resolve to stick with the stuff? How strong is your determination to get to where God ultimately wants you to be? And do you know where He wants you to be? Because His Word gives us a very good description of what God's goal is for your life and my life. But can I say to you, if you don't have a strong resolve, and if you're not bound and determined to get there, there's going to be a lot of getting off places between here and there. You know what I'm saying? There's going to be a lot of places where you can make a U-turn. There's going to be a lot of places where you can make a left turn or a right turn, and you can get off the road that takes you to where God wants you, and you can end up out in left field or end up out in the land of Nod. It does require a little bit of determination. Now, notice what it is that Paul talks about here when he talks about determination. I think the first thing it is that we've got to avoid. We've got to be determined to avoid, church, and listen... This is not a one and done. It's something that we've got to maintain a high level of determination. We are going to stay the course. And you know it's very easy to get off course. And one way to get off course is by following what's popular. So the first thing we've got to avoid by our determination is we've got to avoid what is popular. What's popular? Have any of you ever noticed, let me see by a show of hands, have any of you noticed that Grace Church is just a little bit different from most churches? Now, I'm not going to go into that and ask you why, but we are, you know, and we're different on purpose. We really are. 
A lot of the folk who, to whom Grace Church appeals are people who just can't survive spiritually any longer in the old system of the way things have always been. But you know, that's popular today. So that helps us, but get this, it also hurts us. Because a lot of folk look at a grace church that has in mind doing something that has eternal value and significance. A lot of us look at us like there's something wrong with us. As a matter of fact, we've been called even, we've been even called by folk right here in Bonifay a cult. Because we're so different from everybody else. But you've got to avoid what is popular. Hey, we've also had folk come and, you know, good, well-meaning folk will come and say things like this. Well, back at my old church, we used to do it like this. And I don't know how to say it without hurting feelings, but if that's the way you want to do it, go back to your old church. Huh? Because we're not going down that path. We're on a different path, and we have a different destination, and we are determined to get there. Now, can I just mention in passing a couple models, a couple popular models of churches, and you tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. But, you know, I've been around the block a time or two. I mean, my goodness, I've been doing this now for 32, 33 years, uh, and I've learned a thing or two simply by observation. You know, I've learned that there's only uh, three or four different models of how you can do church. And one of the ways that a lot of people do church is nothing more or less than a stinking business model. Their church is not modeled after the New Testament, but it's modeled after a good business plan. And I've had folk again try to tell me how to do stuff and how to organize and how to administrate. Had one guy used to tell me all the time he's worked Delta Airlines. He said, well, this is how we do it at Delta. I said, well, that's not how we're going to do it in the church. We, we got a little bit higher authority than the standard operating procedure at Delta Airlines. We've got the infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God that gives us a roadmap, and we're going to stick to it, Daddy. Determination. You've got to be determined. But I'm telling you, in a business model, here's the way it fleshes out. The pastor is normally looked at as the CEO. And church members are usually looked at as clients. Now, anytime you set that dynamic up, it's automatically upper management, that is, pastor and staff, it's their responsibility to keep the clientele happy. Because if the clientele ain't happy, they're going to quit coming and they're going to quit giving. And if you quit giving, then there's no more CEO and no more upper management. So it's all about keeping the clientele happy. And that's the way a lot of churches are run. It's nothing more than mimicking a business model. And I'm telling you, we're going to avoid that church. We are going, we are bound and determined to avoid that model. Now, I, am I saying there's nothing that we can learn from good, efficiently ran... I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying our model comes from a little higher authority than from a, a, a standard business textbook. Our authority comes again from God's Word. So we're going to reject that business model. I hesitate to say this. <laughs> but I was so taken back just last week because one of our young, young but very wise 
and mature leaders sent me a photo because there is a church trying to steal him or her away as a staff person. And they sent all the stuff that they were doing. And one of the things that they were doing, church, is this. They are building a 22,000 square foot building for missions and the name of the building is Missions First in order to focus you on missions. That's what it said. And I just got that off the website. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Cliff Myers, you're a contractor. What's it going to cost to build a 22,000 square foot missions first building? Too much. We're talking mega million dollars, right? Now look at here. Grace Church is operating out of a repurposed warehouse. Huh? And we are focused on missions without a 22,000 square foot missions first building. Now I'm sorry, but dear God, where's that model come from? It just kind of blows me away that that's the way people think. But why do people think like that? Because it's good business, Doc. It's good business. Well, I got to run for getting trouble. Here's another model. Here's another model. Not only is there the business model that we've got to avoid, but there's also the government model. The government model. Now, look at here. I want to tell you right now, the church, the evangelical church in Brazil is almost useless for us as missionaries. When Heather and I started working there as missionaries in 2007, we were committed to taking the Brazilian church with us, working through them to reach the Quilombolas in Brazil. They have become so political and so model after their government until we can't even use them anymore. They're just totally useless. But you don't have to look to Brazil to see that. You can see that right here in the United States of America. Huh? I mean, in a business model, pastors, a CEO, church members looked at as clientele. In a business model, there are elected leaders, normally deacons, who are viewed as the representatives of a voting block in the church. And that's how things get done. Now, where do you think things like democratic church polity came from? Do you think that came from the, from the Bible or do you think it came from our form of government? I can tell you where it came from. Son, we've let our government bleed right over into the church and we do business in the church just like the United States government. And the United States government ain't never done any business very effectively, have they? Huh? I mean, come on. I mean, stop and think. What do most churches use in a business meeting? They use parliamentary procedure. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from a name, Parliament. It comes from, you know, here in the United States it would be Congress or, or whatever you want to go. Where does that come from? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, where we're going is not marked out by a business model. It's not marked out by a governmental model. It's marked out by what God has said in His Word, His people ought to be and His people ought to do. So we avoid what's popular. Now what was popular in Paul's day? Well, here's what they were wanting. They were wanting Paul to stand up like the other rhetoricians did, the other speakers, because that was a form of entertainment. Hey, uh, public speaking in Paul's day 
was like Facebook is in ours. That's where everybody went to be in the know, down at the forums where folk were speaking. And the most eloquent speaker, who was the most interesting, who, who was the most persuasive and the most convincing, that's who everybody wanted to hear. So everybody had their favorite. That had crept into the church. That's why there was the Paul party, the Cephas party, uh, the Apollos party. Uh, just go right on along. So Paul comes along and he says, Oh no, I'm not following after what's popular. We're not building a church based upon a cultural model. We're building a church based upon a biblical model. So notice what he says. Look what he says here in, um, in verse number 4. He says, My message, number one, may want to underline that, and my preaching. So he's talking about, number one, his message has to do with the content of what he was saying. So the first thing Paul says that's going to distinguish us is the content of our message. Is the content of our message, thus saith the Lord. Is the content of our message something that comes from Holy Writ? Is the roadmap that we're following to get to where we're going, is it documented in God's Word? Or does it come from a leadership manual or from a standard operating procedure book? What does it come from? And Paul says, the content of my message... And what was the content of his message? I'm telling you what it was. It was God's Word. Look what he says in verse number 1. He says, For I came to you proclaiming the testimony of God. Now at this point, some of your versions might have another word because we have a textual variant here. Some, some translations call it testimony. Other translations call it mystery. Well, in the original language, there's very little differentiation between the two words. You can see how they were mixed up. One is mysterion, mystery. The other is martyrion for testimony. But it's really both. And we can make a case, and there are scholars who make a case for both. But bottom line, here's what Paul is saying. I didn't come to you in persuasive words of speech and claiming to you the latest hot topic. I came to you proclaiming the testimony of God. And friend, that's the content of our message. But notice what else he said. The message refers to content. And he says, my message and my preaching, preaching refers to the characteristics of his ministry. The characteristics of his ministry. And look, Paul wasn't in the in crowd. Don't worry about all that stuff. I'll pick it up in a little while after I walk on it for a little while. Notice what it is that it says. What it is that, that Paul says. Paul says, I was... I, I, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, now look, can I, can, I, can, I, can, I, can, I, can I say some stuff right here? I have pastored churches where folk would come one Sunday and because I didn't speak to them in a crowd of three or four or five hundred, they wouldn't come back because the pastor's not personable enough. Now, I do. I want to get around and talk to everybody that comes. I really do. I, not because I'm a personal guy, because I'm a nosy guy. I want to know you. <laughs> All right? Bother the daylights out of me last week is Eli, right? Eli slipped in here, and he got out without me being able to corner me and talk to him. Lo and behold, he came back. Tell you something about him, don't it? Huh? He ain't here looking for a friend. He's here looking for God's Word, I hope. That's the only thing I, I know to give. But here's what Paul said. I came to you... And I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. You know what I think Paul was saying there? 
He's saying, I don't want to get in your business. I don't. He said, what I want to do is I want to preach to you the undiluted gospel. And I want to be unhindered in doing that. Now let me tell you what I've learned over 30 years of pastoring. Sometimes the more you know about people, the less freedom you have to preach. And here's why I, as a pastor, am against pastoral counseling. I tell young pastors, look, you're not a counselor. Stay out of it. If you can give spiritual advice to some of your people who are seeking for spiritual advice, that's one thing. But you are not a marriage counselor. You are not an addiction counselor. You are, you are none of that stuff. And let me tell you why. Because here's what happens. A pastor, and, and, and now let me back up. Everybody who comes to church, they want their pastor to think that they're spiritual, whether they are or not. Am I right? I mean, you, you, you want your pastor to think highly of you and, and good of you and, and all that kind of Everybody does. I want you to think that way of me. I do everything I can every Sunday to tear it down, but nonetheless, I still want you to think that way of me. So here's what happens. I've seen it happen. It's happened to me countless times as a pastor because the popular model of church pushes the pastor to wear every hat, including counselor. So you've got this couple who's been coming to your church for 10 years. And they call making an appointment and say, Pastor, we need to come talk to you, can we? And they come and sit out in your office and they divulge some deep, dark secrets. And you begin to help them, counsel them to get through this and get beyond this so they have victory over that in their life. So they have victory in it. But after about two or three weeks, they start thinking. You know what they start thinking? They start thinking, now he knows. Now he knows who we are. We can't come to church and put on our face and smile because he knows us now. So you know what they do? It's not long they're at another church because the pastor knew more about them probably than he should have. Or if that doesn't happen, guess what? The pastor is an expository preacher and he's preaching through a book and all of a sudden the very thing that they came and talked to him about is in a text. And he preaches that text and you know what they say? That's exactly right. He just aired out our personal sin in front of God and the entire congregation. We're gone after we stab him in the back and do as much damage to him on the way out as we can. Do you see that? Do you see why Paul said, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Man, there's got to be boundaries. There's got to be boundaries. That's why Dr. John does all our counseling because he's better at it than I am. <laughs> huh? Only premarital, all right. Anyway, Paul was determined. But now notice what else. Let's walk on through this thing. We talked about the content of his message. Now look at the characteristics of his, of, of his ministry. Paul would have never been called to pastor a church today. You know why? Because, son, he don't fit the stereotype. He don't fit the image. I mean, I would like to take you one day to the Florida Baptist Convention and let, me see, let you see the image of, of the stereotypical pastor of a Southern Baptist church. As a matter of fact, I was the other day I was at the stockyard in Brundage loading up some cows, and a guy came up to me and he said, you're a preacher? 
I said, well, yes, I am. He said, you sure don't look like no preacher. I said, thank you. <laughs> I put a lot of effort in not, doing, in not looking like a preacher. I mean, a stereotypical preacher, here he is. He's got to have a gospel wave in his hair. He's got to have on an $800 black Italian silk suit. He's got to have on shiny floor shine shoes. He's got to have a belly so big and he ain't seen his belt buckle since fifth grade. <laughs> huh? Or either this. That's one model or here's the other model. The other model is he's so hip and he's so cool until he stands up and preach, kind of like I am today with my shirt untucked. He's got loafers on with no socks and his britches about up to here. I mean, and, and get this, you've got to be, you got to look just like you stepped out of gym, Gentleman's Quarterly and you've got to have on your arm as a wife, Miss Barbie doll. And I want to tell you, I ain't been to one of them preacher's meetings probably in 15 years. You know why? Because I just got tired of looking at it. I got tired of looking at guys who are in a business model who look at their small church as a small business, but they want to get up to a bigger business. So they play the part. So I quit going. Now look at Paul. Paul don't fit that stereotype at all. As a matter of fact, here's what Paul tells us about himself. I get it soon. It's bothering you, ain't it? I got it. Don't worry about it. Don't bother me, but you folk who are extremely organized, it just bothers you to death, don't it? Here we go. I'm messy. <laughs> uh, here, here's what Paul, here's what we know about Paul. Good tradition tells us that Paul was a little short guy. He was going bald-headed. He was extremely bow-legged. They say his legs look like parentheses. His nose was disproportionately big for the size of his face. He had bad eyesight. We know that from Galatians. He was weakened by malaria and he had a thorn in the flesh. And then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that he has chosen to be celibate. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. <laughs> it may not be that Paul chose to be celibate. All the women in his day chose to let him be celibate, right? <laughs> Listen to me. The description he gives, he was not a chick magnet, huh? <laughs> you call the apostle Paul, you never have to worry about him moraling out of, out of the pastorate. He just ain't going to do it. <laughs> Come on, y'all loosen up. Hey. It's all right to laugh. Now look, let me give you some, some more of Paul's, Paul's ministry methodologies. Look what he says. He says, I didn't come to you with high sound and speech. I didn't have superiority of speech. I didn't come with eloquence. He says, my words were not a per, 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 persuasive wisdom in verse number 4. And he also says, look in verse number 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Bo, how do you hold a mic when you come pray the offertory prayer? How do you have to hold it? <laughs> Bo says, I'm not a public speaker. He says, when y'all call me up there to pray, he says, I, have, I can't just hold it. I got to pin it against my chest so it don't shake. <laughs> I bet everybody else does say, how many of you, how many of you do that? Yeah, yeah, see there, that's a, that's a technique. All right, now that everybody knows how to do it, everybody can do it. So John, we just expanded our, our prayers and our scripture readers and all of that. Now you know how to do it. We gave away the secret. 
But that's the way Paul was when he was preaching. He was shaken in his shoes. He was scared to death. And friend, listen, amazing, amazing. God used a man like that to do more for kingdom expansion than anybody else since him. When I read some of the some of the some of the biographies and some of the accounts of what men were like during the Great Awakenings, for example, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a studious man. He was scrawny. He was bent over from, from studying so much. He had on glasses that are about as thick as the bottom of a Coke bottle. And when he preached, he, can, he read a manuscript just like this. He had to hold it that close to his face. And he preached. And accounts say that while that man was preaching, people would get up and hold on to the columns in the church for fear that they were going to fall off into a devil's hell before he got done preaching. My goodness. And we teach boys up at the college how to deliver an eloquent homily. I'll never forget what Vance Havner said about one of our leading pulpiteers when they took the aging Dr. Vance, Vance Havner just before he died to hear him. And when he got through, they asked Dr. Havner what he thought. He said, well, good message, but where's the power? Where's the power? And son, is that what we're missing today? We've opted for persuasive words for intelligent, educated preachers. And look, I'm not against that. Paul was an educated man. But when we substitute that for the good old-fashioned power of the Holy Spirit, son, the church is never going to be what she ought to be, never going to get to where God wants her to go. So look here. We've got to avoid, number one, that business model. And we've got to opt for Paul's model. Number next, i got about ten outlines on the table. Now, which one am I preaching off of? Here we go. Number next, we've got to, we've got to avoid... What is pragmatic? Just because it works to attract a crowd don't mean that we can use it to build a church. I mean, if we want to attract a crowd, I've told you time and time again, I know a guy that's got a, got a bunch of high-diving mules. <laughs> we can set up his diving platform in church out here and watch mules jump into a swimming pool from about 75 feet up. We can attract a crowd, couldn't we? But son, we... We'd never convert them into a church. <laughs> and do you know that's why we do a lot of the things that we do? Have you ever noticed? And it's not because we were smart enough. Dr. John says we had to do this beginning because we didn't have no money. We don't have a lot of y'all come and see events. Have you ever noticed that? We don't. Because our philosophy is not come and see. Our philosophy is go and tell. That's why we go, and, we go where people are. If there's a football game, we want to send grace people up there. We'll give you a grace hat. We'll give you a grace church. And we want you to serve this community. And if anybody asks you why, tell them why. And they will ask you why. So it's not just because it works to attract a crowd. We do things that are effective to build a church. So Paul says, if we're going to get to where we're going, we've got to have determination. 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 Because if we're not determined... Hey, listen to me, church. If you're not determined to get there, you're going to take a turn somewhere or another. Check out number next. <clears throat> to get to where we're going, not only, to, not only must we have a strong determination, but to get to where we're going, we must have the Spirit's demonstration. Now check this out. Here's another word you may want to underline in that text. Notice what it is that Paul says.
Verse number 4. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Hey. One of the reasons why I quit going to those preacher meetings is because the same old superstars have been on the platform for 25 years preaching the same old message. I'm going to go when they get somebody from Podunk Holler who speaks with a Bonifay country drawl accent but the power of God resting on his life. And when he gets done preaching, people are on their knees asking God to restore them. And that's what we're talking about. And look what Paul says. I want to point this out to you. Look what he says. He says, it wasn't, wasn't with wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, here we go. Let me, let me, give, you, let me give you clue number one. Demonstration of the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit makes it intensely personal for you. You ever notice how some folk can come and they can sit under strong biblical preaching somewhere and they leave unmoved? You know what the missing element was? Somehow or another, the Spirit of God didn't make it intensely personal for them. So all they heard was a speech. And look, it's amazing to me how this happens. It's a mystery of God. But nonetheless, it happens that way. I've been preaching before at places where there are five, six hundred people. And you know, one of the things a preacher got to do is stand at back, shake everybody's hand. And I have some folk come up and they say, Preacher, God rattled my world today. Here's what he said, and this is what I must do. And the next person that comes shakes my hand will come by and say, good talk, preacher. Walk right on out. You see the difference? That's the mystery that Paul talks about. Son, if it's not the Spirit of God that takes it and applies it to your life, you can sit under the best preaching in the United States of America and not be moved. Not one bit. So here's what it takes. Here's, Here's how the Spirit demonstrates it to you. Here's how he makes it immensely personal. How many of you have learned the fact that you can't outgive God? Raise your hand. If you've learned that you can't outgive God, raise your hand. Now, how many of you have heard me say from the pulpit, you can't outgive God? See, everybody has heard it, but few people have learned it. Now, how did you learn it? You learned it because the Spirit demonstrated it to you. Because here's what happens. It sounds foolish. There's no way this is going to work. I make X amount of dollars. That's 100%. Now, you're saying that I should start probably with 10%. That's the Old Testament tithe, but it's, it's a disgrace for people who are under grace to give less than those did under law. So let me just start as a benchmark giving. I'm going to give 10. Now I've only got 90%. How many of you have learned that you can do more? You are better off with 90% of your paycheck after having been faithful to God than you are with 100% of it living in disobedience. How many of you have learned that? Huh? Now, you know how you learn that? Because the Spirit of God demonstrated it to you. You heard that in the Word somewhere. You heard somebody talking about how you can't outgive God one day and you thought, you know what? By faith. This doesn't make sense to me, but by faith, I'm going to try it. And you try it by faith, 
and all of a sudden the Spirit demonstrates His pleasure upon it and He makes you better off with 90% than you would have been with all of it. And look, that is a demonstration of the Spirit. That's what He does. You can't learn that cognitively without putting faith to what the Word says. And when you do that, that's a demonstration of the Spirit. Let me ask you some more questions. How many of you wanted to go on a mission, short-term mission trip, but when the church said it's going to cost somewhere in the vicinity of $2,000, $2,500, you thought, ain't no way on God's green earth I can do that. Huh? Just about everybody, huh? But now how many of you just last, when did we go, in June? How many of you thought, well, I know this is, this is God's Word. He tells us to go. It's not an option. It's a command. He tells us to go. I want to go. I don't have $2,500. What am I going to do? I'm going to go. And how many of you, when you took a step by faith, saw God say, all right, now let me show you what I can do? Huh? Huh? You know what that is? That's a demonstration of the Spirit. You see, that's resting your faith on the power of God. And there ain't nobody anywhere ever going to convince you. I don't care how many degrees they've got in accounting. I don't care what kind of financial manager they are. I don't care how many X's and O's they draw on a chalkboard. There ain't nobody ever going to talk you out of the fact that it doesn't work. Huh? Because God's math is a little bit different than our math, isn't it? It just is. And you can apply that to anything. How many of you have sensed God leading you through His Word to do something and you didn't want to, you didn't want to, you didn't want to, you dreaded it, and all of a sudden you stepped out on faith and did it, and the next thing you were saying is, my God, why didn't I do this years ago? You know what that is? That's a demonstration of the Spirit. But here's what most of us want to do. We want Him to demonstrate first. But it doesn't work that way. You see, because without faith, it's impossible to please God. But when you step out on faith, and look, can I be very, very clear? Stepping out on faith is not the popular idea or definition of stepping out on nothing and finding something there. When you walk by faith, you're not walking by mysticism or just blind allegiance or hope or wishful thinking. When you step out on faith, you're stepping out on the most secure foundation known to man, the Word of God. Hey, listen here. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the Word of God stands forever. Wise is the man who builds his house upon the rock. And when you step out on God's Word, I promise you, He's going to demonstrate His pleasure. There's going to be a demonstration of the Spirit and ain't nothing anybody can do to ever convince you that it wasn't a supernatural occurrence in your life because you stepped out in faith on God's Word. It's just the way it works. Just the way it works. Dane told me the other day, he said, since I've been a missionary, I've become a faith junkie. Because it does, it becomes addictive. God, what outlandish, foolish Stupid sounding thing do you want me to do next? What does your word say that I should do next? You know, because what do missionaries do? They sell everything, leave family, uh, mother, father, brother, sister, sons and daughters, grandkids, and they go. 
And most folk pity him. And Dane says, no, I'm a faith junkie now because, man, when you do that, you see what God does in response. i got to hurry. Look here, I'm out of time already. And this is just a half a sermon. This is the other half of the salami that was left over from last week. Check this out. If we're going to get to where we're going, we must have the Spirit's demonstration. That is, He makes it intensely personal for you. All, the word, all of a sudden, this book becomes yours. <laughs> huh? But next, not only does He make it intensely personal, but He makes it extremely powerful. Look what Paul says in that verse. He says, he says this in verse number 4, But in demonstration of the Spirit, that's one thing, and of power... In demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Number one, he makes it intensely personal. Number two, he makes it extremely powerful. Now, what is the power that he's talking about? All we got to do is go back to Romans chapter 1, verse number 16, and hear Paul say this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. You see, that's why Paul didn't want to know anything among you. Just let me come and, and unleash the power of God contained in the gospel upon you. Now that word salvation doesn't just refer to justification. It refers to the entire process. That means it's the gospel that justifies. It's the gospel that sanctifies. And it is ultimately going to be the gospel that glorifies us. Let's just talk about sanctification right now. Here's, here, here's, here's, when, the, here's when the gospel begins to demonstrate power in your life. Can I ask you a few questions? Man, grace group leaders, here we go. I'm already giving you your stuff. What is it upon which you make decisions in life? What is it that moves you? What moves you from here to there? Is it the gospel or is it something else? What would cause you to move? Not just spiritually, but physically. Would it be a promotion at work? Might look good on the outside, but might be spiritually detrimental. Could it be a geographic change? Might look good on the outside, but might be detrimental. Could it be a new relationship that you're forming? It might look good on the outside, but it could be detrimental to your spiritual health. You see, that's the power of the gospel. Because when you look back, when you begin to make your life decisions based upon the gospel, and the gospel, make no mistake about it, is the testimony of God. It's God's Word. When you begin to make your decisions based on that, here's what happens. You wake up after about six months of doing that and you look back and you say, my God, I'm a different person. You know what that is? That's transformation. Because through the gospel, the power of God and the salvation, He moves you. You begin to be transformed. You become more sanctified. You're more like Christ today than you were yesterday. And you know what else you are? You're getting closer to the destination that God has for you. And make no mistake about it, you've heard me say it over and over again. I'm going to say it one more time and I'm done. The future that God has for you is better than the future that you could sit down and draw out for yourself. We call it God's preferred future. Now look, Grace Church, we have a destination in mind. We're only five years old. And can I say to you, it's going to be better than we ever thought it could be. Next year, it ought to be better than it is today because we're still on the path, being moved by the gospel from one degree of glory to another. Hey, church, I promise you, 
If we're going to get there, we've got to have a destination, we've got to have a determination, and we've got to have the Spirit's demonstration. May God grant it for His good and glory. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And God, I, our only part in this, after hearing your word, is to step out on what we know that you have said to us, what you have made intensely personal for us today. The only thing remaining is for us to step out in faith and watch the Spirit demonstrate its truthfulness in our life.